Hello there, Alaskans, wherever you are. Welcome to the Must Read Alaska Show, coming to you from somewhere in Alaska. This is the place where we talk about, you guessed it, Alaska, where we keep the mainstream media on their toes and where we are standing up for what's right and a world run by leftists. You can find out more by heading over to mustreadalaska.com and also checking out the Must Read Alaska YouTube channel for some really great content. But first, let's get this party started. Hey, thank you, Scott. Hey, welcome aboard, everybody. to the Must Read Alaska show coming to you from somewhere in Alaska, where it's going to be happy hour, except in the Kiski, where John Quick is holding forth. John, my co-host and fearless partner over there in the Kiski, I'm kind of looking across the inlet. And if I just look hard enough, I might be able to see you through that fog bank. How's it going over there? It is going awesome. We love it out here in the great uh, part of Alaska called the Kenai Peninsula Borough. Uh, the happening news uh, out here in the Kenai Peninsula Borough, Suzanne, is that uh, recently, uh, about I think a week ago, maybe two weeks ago, the Church of Satan came and did a prayer before the Kenai Peninsula Borough oh, Assembly meeting. And you, a, as you know, that's been in and out of the news here in the Kenai Peninsula Borough for, I don't know, probably seven years and going back and forth. And can they do a prayer or can, do they have to be an ordained minister? Do they have to be an official nonprofit? Do they have to have a church? And essentially the courts and the borough decided that anybody can do any prayer at any given time, no matter who they are. And so uh, that happened. It's caused a bit of a ruckus, which it usually does. And we'll see. Yeah. That sounds like a news story to me. Yeah. And uh, you know, the, the, um, the thing is, they they uh, they came in uh, and they they want to make the the newspaper the headlines right because that gets their agenda out there. But but also the the conservatives also want to say, hey, listen, we should have a process for this. This is all we've ever argued in the borough. If you followed the story, is there should be a process to have folks be able to ordain ministers, be able to do an invocation before. An assembly meeting. If you don't have a process for stuff, then things become unorganized and crazy real fast. And so it's not that the conservatives are saying we don't want anybody to pray except for their Christians. They're pretty much just saying we want a process for this because if we don't have a process, it becomes uh, chaos and we don't want that kind of attention in the borough. Well, don't they also have, um, occasionally they have the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster that comes in and don't they do their prayer as well before the, the Kenai Borough meetings? They do. And I think they're, that, that group is also an officially, a, uh, you know, a part of the Church of uh, Satan, which is not, you know, they would, they would make the argument they don't have anything to do with Satan. They basically worship themselves as oh, part of their doctrine. Oh, that's so um, adorable. So... But that's what we do here on the Kenai Peninsula. Yeah, Road. yeah, we... you, yeah. You guys are going crazy, <laughs> ripping it up. To, you know, and, it, and it's tricky territory because the Constitution and because the the Bill of Rights are free speech rights. And if you're going to have prayers before meetings, I guess you know you can't yeah. just ex- exclude all comers to that. And that's what the Church of Satan is trying to do. But they've got a greater agenda. Say, I don't want um, to belabor this issue, but do send me a note about that because I think it's yes. time for me to to put that in the news cycle. But today I want to get to our guest because we have a very, very important guest with us. And we're so happy to have Diana Furchot 
Roth, who is with us. She is a, an economist. She is an adjunct professor at the George Washington University on economy uh, as, as, as an economist. And she's quite well written, well, well read and well spoken. And uh, Diana, we're so happy to have you join us on the Must Read Alaska show. Oh, it's great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me on. And I know that it is a little bit damp and cold where you are. It's like 37 degrees there in Washington, D.C. area, correct? That's right. It is, yes. Yeah, but at least it's a damp 37. Here in Anchorage, it's 11 degrees and it's a sparkling day and there's hoarfrost all over the trees. And it's it's quite beautiful. It's a dry cold. And so... Um, we kind of we're kind of enjoying this winter weather. Diana, you're really nice to join us today about um, to talk about the Pro Act. This is so important, and I'm so grateful to, to have you on our show because the Pro Act is something that we thought went away. We thought it went away when it was it was killed out a few weeks ago. But you're here to tell us that it hasn't really quite gone away. It's kind of like a zombie. It could come right back. Can you? Can you tell us a little bit about the PRO Act and, and what it does and why it's such a concern? Well, the PRO Act has more than 50 changes to current law, and it seeks to overhaul the National Labor Relations Act. Uh, it would overturn state right-to-work laws, limit the ability of employers to contest union election petitions, uh, restrict the ability of employers to obtain labor relations advice. But the PRO Act, let's say, probably is not going to pass. So what people are doing is they're putting parts of the PRO Act into the Build Back Better law. And the Build Back Better law was supposed to pass last year. Uh, it might pass in some form uh, this spring. And if it does, the folks who gave you the PRO Act would like to put $50,000 fines or $100,000 fines for employers into Build Back Better. This was a provision of the PRO Act that would have fined employers $50,000 for an unfair labor practice. Well, you might say, what is an unfair labor practice? I was going to ask you that exact thing. What is an unfair labor practice according to them? It could be something as minor as having something wrong in a handbook. It could be putting out a T-shirt that says vote in a union election. It could be anything. And this would result in a 50000 or a 100000 fine, which is not something that Alaska's employers need right now. They are having a hard enough time with the supply chain problems, with the pandemic problems, with all these other problems, with just selling their products and making sure that their workers keep employed. So uh, we basically do not want this aspect of the PRO Act in Build Back Better. So Build Back Better is still in play. I thought that we had sort of killed that off last year and it, it just ended up in a sort of impasse. Is that not the case? Some people are talking about bringing back a smaller version, Build Back Better Light or uh, you know, Build Back Lighter. So I think that this is something we should keep an eye on. The original form of Build Back Better probably is not going to come back, but certain provisions might be taken out in order to be put into a smaller bill. And, uh, and is this something where they can just sort of sneak it into a bill and you know, hope that you know, people aren't aware of it? They just put pieces of this uh, PRO Act into a bill here or into a bill there. Is that what you're sort of thinking that could happen? 
Yeah, well, these staffers are pretty smart. They can sneak anything into any bill at the last moment, especially when people like Nancy Pelosi say you have to pass it before you find out what's in it. But there are people who are keeping a very strong eye on it, and we're going to hope it's not going to happen. We're going to help build back better doesn't happen. And if it does, that this aspect of the PRO Act is not in it because employers are having such a tough time right now and uh, they want to spend all their resources on hiring more workers, finding more workers, paying them good wages. They don't want to have to worry about fines. Every $50,000 fine is someone that they can hire for a year. And that's $50,000 per instance. Per unfair labor practice. Yeah, exactly. Per instance. Yeah. So if they have two unfair labor practices, that's a hundred thousand. Or if they have been uh or, or if it's a repeat offense for an unfair labor practice, if someone said they did it before, then it's a hundred thousand for that. So that's something where they could hire two people instead of that one hundred thousand dollar fine. Wow. So uh John, you Diana, have a question, John. Thanks so much for joining us. I got a question for you. I I um uh, pride myself on just kind of being a normal everyday American. And one of the things that I do is I own a little hardware store out here in the middle of nowhere in Alaska with some family members. And, you know, when, when people hear about the kind of stuff like this, that's happening in DC, a lot of people are disassociated with everything that has to do with what happens in DC. They don't really know, including myself, how it affects me. And so if you can give me a, your two cents on why the average business owner in America should care about this, why should they kind of drop what they're doing, listen to this podcast, and maybe call one of their representatives to find out more about this? How, why is it important to the small business owner? Well, it's important because as we've seen from what's going on in these small Starbucks Starbucks stores to the big Amazon warehouse, big Amazon warehouses, there are people who are trying to organize employees, even if it's not in their best interest, even if employees might be better without paying those union dues, or uh, they might be better without being pushed into an underfunded pension plan, for example. There are still people who are trying to organize workplaces. And if an employer or a franchise owner, because sometimes it's one Starbucks that's attempted to be unionized, if someone gets accused of an unfair labor practice, even if it's just a small business, then they get hit with one of these $50,000 or $100,000 fines. Well, you know, to me, I'm looking at John's business there in Nikiski, and I'm thinking, John, this is exactly the kind of thing that could hit you. I mean, because you're in a place where people are actually pretty politically involved and they have lots of opinions. But let's just say somebody came in with, a, you know, you hired somebody and they had a, a different opinion than the majority of people in the business. And there was some, you know, somebody wore a Trump shirt to work or something. And, and somebody filed a, an unfair labor practice against your business. I mean, that would be enough to almost put a, a person out of business. Oh, yeah. We, um, we have a, our business is basically a service to the community. All of the owners have full-time businesses that they run outside of the hardware store. And I'm sure that is similar with folks that own mom, pop places all over middle America. Um, so, 
you know, one of the things, Diane, Diana, that um, that we've kind of been reading about lately is this potential new nomination for um, Department of Labor's Wage and Hour Administrative Advance Advances, which most people probably have no idea what that even means, but it's basically somebody who Biden could potentially appoint. Can you talk to us a little bit about who this nominee is and and why would why we should be maybe concerned about it? Yes. So plan A was to pass the PRO Act. Plan B was to put provisions of the PRO Act into Build Back Better. And if that doesn't work, they're going to plan C, which is appointing Professor David Weil to run the wage and hour division of the Labor Department. Now, why is it that the Labor Department wage and hour division is plan C for all these provisions? Because the Labor Department can put them in via regulation basically bypassing Congress, which needs 50 or 51 senators to uh, pass a particular law. So they can go outside the law and put these in by regulation. So that's what happened during the Obama administration when David Weil, the same David Weil, had the same position, administrator of the wage and our division. And he put in place under regulation all kinds of rules that then got overturned by judges. And his book, which anyone can read, if, you, if anyone wants to know what he thinks, he wrote a book called The Fishered Workplace. Now, in Alaska, you might think the fishered workplace has something to do with fishing. It has nothing to do with fishing. It's fishers as in gaps in the workplace. And the thesis of his book is that gig workers, independent contractors, are falling through the fissures in the workplace, the gaps, and they should all be employees. Now, some, there's very clear guidelines on who should be a full-time worker and who shouldn't, but there are many people who want to work just part-time or want to work some hours for themselves, some hours for other people, and some hours for yet another person, and they want to be independent contractors. So one thing David Weil says is that everyone should be an employee and no one should be an independent contractor. And in 2015, he issued guidance stripping workers of their independent contractor status, saying most workers are employees. And this got overturned uh, by a judge. Then he had another rule called the persuader rule. The persuader rule said, that if you have attorney-client privilege, if you, John, as a small business owner, want to hire a lawyer, uh, you can have your discussions with your lawyer be private and confidential if it's about taxes, if it's about zoning, if it's about sexual harassment. But if it's anything to do with union organizing, the name of that attorney has to be made public and all the attorney's other clients have to be made public. So that basically is to discourage attorneys from advising small businesses on union organizing. That was thrown out by a judge in 2016. But David Weil spent five years trying to push forward this persuader rule. And now he could be able to do it through regulation. Yeah, so now you can start the same thing again. Yes, exactly. The same thing. And, and then we are going to have to litigate on that. Obviously, that would be something that 
the business community, I, per, uh, I perhaps something like NFIB, National Federation of Independent Business, or the uh, U.S. Chamber of Commerce might uh, might have to litigate over to, to have that thrown out as well. Suzanne, they spent millions of dollars between 2011 and 2016, uh, mm -hmm. basically getting up the litigation for this. Right. And so now uh, here we go again. This and this then actually, it was just and it was thrown out by a judge as being illegal. This is actually really kind of shocking for us here in Alaska because a lot of us work in the gig economy. And in fact, everybody at Must Read Alaska is essentially on contract. We're on we're contractors and we have other we have other work that we do. Um, we have other businesses that we own. We have other enterprises or employers. And so it, it would really drastically impact the ability of entrepreneurs to be able to grow businesses from the point where they're just kind of getting started to the point where they actually can have employees um, because it, it, you know, having employees is a very expensive prospect. It's, you know, it's going to cost you kind of a hundred thousand dollars a year, at least to have one employee just because of all the residuals right. from, from, exactly. from having that. Yeah. And that, that would really um, advantage existing businesses and large businesses and disadvantage small businesses and, and, and entrepreneurs like John, who is a, Typically, what he does is he's a business creator. He creates a lot of businesses, and he's really talented at that. But he couldn't do it if he had to employ full-time employees and get their wages and benefits. I mean, that that's just that's really scary, quite honestly. It really is. It really is, Suzanne. And the National Labor Relations Board now is moving on one particular set of employees to see whether they should be full-time employees. And as I recall, these are makeup artists at the Atlanta Opera Company. Now, if you're a makeup artist at an opera company, you are not employed eight hours a day, five days a week, because the opera doesn't run every night. So you go from one opera to another, or you maybe you do a theater one night, you do someone who's going to be on TV another day, you do an opera company another time. But just the same makeup artists have to be full-time employees if they're employed by an opera makes no sense at all. No, and most of those employees are going to have other work. They are going to probably be hairstylists or some, well, something exactly. else in, in the beauty industry. They have other jobs and this is what they do on the side because it's their passion. They love to do it. They love to be involved with the arts. And now you're going to make them into, you know, sort of unionized employees, even if they're only working uh, six hours a week. Right. Yes. Yes. And the rules for these unions are just very very troubling to me. I was asked to find out about the American Federation of Musicians because a musician that I know kept having small percentages of his wages deducted from the paychecks when he played background music in a film or background music for an artist. So he said, if I join the union, one of these locals, then will these amounts get taken away? Will I have my entire paycheck? rather than these little 2 to 5% amounts subtracted. Well, if you go on the American Federation of Musicians local 807 for New York website, and you read it very carefully, you find, first of all, they don't tell you how much the union dues are before you have the application to join. So you have to go through all through the application before you find out how much you owe. And the answer is $320 for the first year, $220 for subsequent years. But then you find out that these work dues that the employer is subtracting when you have a gig are not are still binding even if you are a member of the union. So what are you joining the union for? It doesn't give you anything. 
Now, I'm looking through the, uh, the PRO Act here. I'm fascinated by this. And all of a sudden, you've, you've captured my interest. The PRO Act it, um, was, pa was it, it passed the House on almost entirely on party lines. And it, it looks to me like our own congressman here in Alaska was one of the five that voted for it. And yeah, um, I can't believe that. That is really surprising to me that Don Young voted for it. There were, and I'm, I'm just looking at the, the website clerk.house.gov. And my gosh, there's there's Don Young's name, and he is a Republican who's voted for the Pro Act. I'm just really stunned. I, I didn't know you that should have him on your show to talk to him about it. Well, I think I'm going to. I think I'm going to call him today and say, "What the heck yes. are you thinking?" Because small businesses right. like me, small businesses like John, and uh, you know, if Scott wants to start a small business. Uh, we want small businesses. That's the backbone of America. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And huh. you should just tell him it's against the interests of his constituents. Yeah, well, I'm I'm definitely going to call him about this. And you should well, also so, look at his. You can look. You should look at OpenSecrets.org and see if he got any campaign contributions from any unions that would have influenced his decision and his vote. That's another interesting thing you should look. at. I've got that tab open already. I am going to do that. I, right. I think that's fascinating. Well, I really, really <clears throat> appreciate you being on our show today and taking the time out of your busy day. It is really great to hear an expert talk about these things. I did not know about David Weil, and I did not know that he was going to be in the position of power as the plan C for, um, for getting all, all of these really bad policies in place should this Build Back Better light fail. And I think uh, for Alaskans, what the takeaway is is they probably had better contact a Congressman Don Young's office, as well as uh, Senator Lisa Murkowski and Senator Dan Sullivan's office and let them know uh, that they've got their eye on this. If you're a small business owner, or if you, if you uh, plan to be a small business owner, particularly uh, if you're a medium-sized business owner, I think this still has a big impact on you. And we surely appreciate you coming on our show today, Diane. Is there anything well, else you'd like? You. Anything else you'd yeah. like to tell our our, um, our listening public before we let, let you go? Uh, sure. I think it's not enough for Senator Mikulski and Senator Sullivan uh, just to oppose David Wilde. If they could put a hold on him, that would be very useful. If they could both put a hold on him, then it'll be a lot harder to move him forward in the process. Ah, I see. Well, I'm going to look into that. And thank you very much. Okay. And for everybody else who's listening to this show, I just want to thank you for tuning into the Must Read Alaska show. We will be here tomorrow. Scott Levesque, our fearless producer, will be producing the show tomorrow. We'll have lots to talk about, including the attempt to remove Representative David Eastman from all of his committees, something that happened today in the Alaska House, something that happened and sort of failed for the moment. Um, but if you'd like to support the conservative side of the news, you know, the donate button is on the right-hand side of mustreadalaska.com. And I appreciate you helping us keep the lights on here at Must Read Alaska as we defend all that is right in Alaska and we allow our conservative voice and perspective on the news to be heard. So until then, we're signing off from somewhere in Alaska.